I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broken Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. This is Summer. And Felina's still out on sabbatical. So I have Carmen with me again. She's going to be co-hosting. And she's actually on location with our guest today. Say hi, Carmen. Hey, guys. How are you? It's good to be back, broken people. Can you introduce our guests for us, please? Hi, broken, broken people. I'd love to introduce you to one of my very, very closest friends. And so close, we refer to each other as cousins. Our mothers grew up together. Um, this is Corey Tabor, C-O-R-I-T-A-B-E-R. Corey, say hi. Hi, everybody. Um, Corey is um, in Oklahoma with me. She's lived here in Tulsa as well as Oklahoma City and Norman. Tell us a little more about yourself. Hmm. So I am an Oklahoma-born and Oklahoma-raised Native American transgender woman. What Carmen said is correct. I currently reside in Oklahoma City, but I spend a lot of time here in Tulsa still, and I definitely claim the town as home. Um, I'm a hairstylist, and recently I've taken up acting and modeling um, based on many invitations from photographers and runway uh, uh, fashion designers as well. And so one of the things that I'm really focused on right now is bringing about visibility and inclusion in Oklahoma for transgender women such as myself. Wonderful. Uh, Can you tell us what nation? Okay, Creek and Cherokee, and my family originates in the Tahlequah and Muscogee areas. I am Beaver Clan, and I am a member of Tallahassee Local Guide Tribal. You said you're working on trans visibility, and I saw uh, you uh, a Facebook video where you mentioned that. I guess yesterday, the day before. Um, what's going on with that right now? Well, um, there's certain things that are happening in Oklahoma that really resonate with events and occurrences around the country. You know, as you might know, there have been instances where transgender women have been murdered, mm-hmm. transgender women have disappeared, and transgender women have been victims of domestic violence. And all of these statistics relate to Black and Native American transgender women specifically that I can speak for. Mm-hmm. And I am one of those victims. I am a victim of transgender violence in a domestic violence capacity. And this is all part of the missing and murdered Indigenous women scenario that is taking over Indian country and casting a dark shadow on the women of our nation. And these are issues that are very close to home, as you might imagine. And many victims in my family have suffered in intergenerational capacities. It's something that's very passionate um, for me because I I feel like it's our our duty as Native women to um, be front runners and change for this this endemic situation. So those are some of the things that I'm focused on. One area specifically is incarceration. I want to call upon local elected officials to ensure that transgender women, specifically transgender women of color, are safe and treated with dignity and respect in incarceration situations. So those are some of the things that I'm focused on in addition to modeling and acting. Because again, a lot of this is about transgender visibility and inclusion in a normalization kind of capacity. We want people to understand that um, we're just like everybody else. Corey, what is inclusion and what is um, a lot of these things that a lot of lay people, and I'm going to say people that aren't activists and people that aren't normally involved, what do you mean when you say that? Inclusion means two different things to me. One of those things is representation at all levels, whether it mean peer-to-peer education, whether it mean, you know, having actual positions and jobs and paid positions that give us the chance to speak for and advocate for 
our communities as it relates to policy creation. That's just one small example. Another example is trans visibility, which means I want to see my face in campaigns for the Oklahoma City uh, Chamber of Commerce. I want to see my campaign, uh, my face in campaigns for like Gills Clothing, for example. I want to have those local companies support the LGBT and gender diverse community. And I think that it's important for them to send that message to really garner our support. Awesome. That's just important as far as we kind of, I say we as me, Summer, and sometimes the actives in community, including yourself. Thank you so much, Corey. Um, we don't get, you know, the memo, if you will, about what inclusion, what intersectional feminism is and things like that. And I've had to be straightforward to saying, we're going we're gonna to talk about those things. So back to you, Summer. <laughs> it is important. And yeah, it is missing quite often. And I think... Unfortunately, the trans community gets the uh, the brunt of that from a lot of different directions. Um, that's you know some of our other communities don't quite have to deal with as much. Um, so I think that's why that representation is really important, isn't it? Yeah, you know specifically what you just said is the exact issue that I find to be the most disturbing. You know, if we think about the LGBT movement, we're so quick to honor Marsha P. Johnson. And we're so quick to acknowledge and understand the fact that she had a pivotal, a pivotal role in creating this this wave of change, including other street. They called it their organization Street Transvestite Action Revolutionary because their whole goal was to really bring about inclusion, awareness, and acceptance, even back in the '60s and '70s, and as early at that time and all the way to now. They are being ridiculed. We are being ridiculed. We are being mocked. We're being treated with transphobia from within the LGBT community and internalized transphobia from our own brothers and sisters. In addition to that, there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding in the non-trans community that makes it especially challenging for us to make inroads because these ideas are so ingrained in comedy and we're so often the bread of jokes. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we're also so susceptible to violence. Well, it's easier to be violent or even exclusionary if you don't see someone as people, right? It's true. I think it's, it's so easy to dehumanize somebody mm-hmm. because it makes you feel more human. You know, it's that whole scenario, that old trope of hurting people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so, that so speaks to the truth of my circumstance. You know, the person that hurt me was a deeply wounded individual. That don't make it right. Oh, that sorry. That no, right. that's true. That it doesn't. But first time, that doesn't make it right. It never made it okay. You know, I had the circumstance of being physically abused and having my home damaged and being isolated from my friends and relatives, and it was miserable. And when you're in the thick of it, it's so hard to see your way out, especially considering the threats that were lodged at me, and that just made it so traumatic that there's. PTSD that lingers even today and that's that's horrible but it's true how far do you want to go into it to talk about it to bring this stuff home to people you know what kind of threats were made okay so you you don't have to name names I don't there there won't be any names until I write the book because in case you missed it my daily life is a fucking circus and so (laughs) I promised you that I'm writing a book and this book is going to be sex in the city meets the hell (laughs) <laughs> it's so southern and it's going to be so real and it's going to be the expose that I'm going to have to consult attorneys on to make sure I can't get sued <laughs> lovely I love it <laughs> it's, it's like that you know and so 
I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing to navigate this world as a transgender woman. And I'm very blessed to be very passable in society in general. And for that reason, I attract a wide variety of men. And there's been circumstances where some of them are very caring and some of them are very hurtful. And the worst threat that ever happened was in the relationship that I got physically accosted. And, and this man said, I dare you to call the police for domestic violence. Because as soon as I get out on that charge, I'm gonna come kill you. Mm. Because what I know for a fact is if I'm getting sent up, I'm getting sent up for murder, not motherfucking bitch ass domestic violence, bitch. So keep that in mind. And I'll never forget it. Like it was the craziest moment in my life because I know that this was the exact story that my grandmother has experienced. My grandmothers were native and they had white alcoholic husbands. And that's exactly who this person was unbeknownst to me. And it was such an intergenerational loop that it was, I mean, traumatic. It was intense and traumatic. And I found my way out of it. And I'm so thankful for that because I have to say, currently I'm in a very long-term relationship with a Marine who is an amazing human and the kindest person and the most supportive man I've ever dated in my entire life. And he is supportive of my modeling career, my hairstyling career, my efforts at activism, my tribal awareness and my tribal participation, and every aspect of me becoming who it is I feel like I need to be. That's wonderful. I'm glad you got out of that and into a much better situation. She's amazing. Can I just have a, just a second to testify <laughs> if I can? Go right ahead. <laughs> We just gave each other a yes, bitch, and high five and handhold in the air over this militarized, lovely man coming into her life. And we've been together as roommates and best friends and all this so many years now that it's just like we just lay it. Earlier, I was like, hold on, let me extertwine my legs from yours while I can get up over here. <laughs> Doing this from the bedroom studio, as it were. And, um, you know, it's just. I've never seen one person, and I, I, I joke that I'm like, I'm the person most people hope you don't. I motherfucking wish you would. <laughs> and I, I am that person. I don't wish for violence. I don't wish for anything, but I always am out to teach a lesson to people. And I've never had to teach a lesson about you, girl. Like, not once. I've never had anyone come at me. I know you had concerns early on that, you know, how people, not anyone, our families close or things sure. like that, how they would treat you, how elders that weren't, you know, in in the know, if you will, or, you know, as, as my grandmother was passing after your mother had passed recently, yeah. and things like that, I mean, those types of things and those approvals are some things you can't have guaranteed for you, and you had to be a brave person. I don't care if you want to say a gender with it, a brave person going through a transition, and you're the human being that woke my eyes up to the marginalization and fight of the transgender community because everybody's like oh what's going on and I always make the joke that well I'm just standing up for what they classify me as anyway because I know you're one of the few people that will stand up and say oh yeah that people have asked me am I am I post-op pre-op am I you know what's the deal and I'm like I have a low voice I'm nearly I'm coming closer to six foot tall than I am five foot tall <laughs> you know it's an honest you know I think it's honest true. mistake it's and true. I don't feel any less of a woman. I've never, it never even, it took me a while. It took me a while. It took me a minute yeah. to get the the words right and the pronouns right. And then it took me a second to sit down and think about how that made you feel 
as you're coming into it, and I've made sure to never get those different. Yeah. And not try to rub girl, girl, girl in your face. Has your family been supportive? Oh my gosh, so about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a twin brother. Mm -hmm. At one point in our lives, we were identical twins. Mm -hmm. And he identifies as a two-spirit person as well. He is my best friend on planet Earth. And he lives in Brooklyn. And he hangs out with my super, super fly, super non-binary, super naughty squad. (laughs) And... They just all love each other, and it makes me feel so happy because I know that he's protecting them and they're protecting him. And it's a beautiful thing, but we stay in constant contact, Mm -hmm. and that's really amazing. Um, I have a biological father I'm not close to and haven't been since I was a teenager, which has nothing to do with my gender identity. And I have a mother who is deceased and a grandmother Actually, both of my grandmothers are deceased. Mm. And um, what I'm left with is a stepdad who is remarried, and I have a stepdad who's married to my stepmom, and they are the most supportive parents I've ever had. And it's, it's just super beautiful. And what's even more crazy is they're fundamentalist Christians, and they're white as hell. Wow. <laughs> they're the most beautifully supportive and beautifully loving and beautifully accepting people. And... I think that beautifully white. I, they are they are beautifully white folks, <laughs> and I white people. I feel so blessed to be able to make people like that understand something that they never, ever could have understood otherwise. Right. And I feel like that's something that I feel like there's two really types of trans people in this world. I feel like there's those of us who are very broken and who can't speak their truth and can't own and articulate and publicly claim their truths. And I don't judge that because there's a million reasons why. But then I think there's those of us who have always known and have had plenty of time to accept it and plenty of time to understand it and get comfortable with the truth. And, you know, I think that my culture made that especially true for me. Mm-hmm. And I just love that I'm able to share that with people because it's a type of visibility and you know, what I touched on earlier with this visibility inclusion scenario relates to circumstances that have been withheld from us. Let me give you an example. With Will and Grace, it was nothing but tropes. It was trope after trope after trope, but it was the 90s, and that was the gig. 
It was that way on Friends. It was that way on Sex and the City. If you go back and look, it's trope after trope, and it's tacky as hell. And it's so problematic by today's standards, and it blows my mind. (laughs) But what it did is, at that time, it created acceptance then. And it created a level of acceptance that made people comfortable with it, even straight men, even straight women. You know, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy totally does the same type of shtick. And what's even worse is when it comes to things like Pose or uh, Orange is the New Black, it's the same thing but worse. It's just like there's there's just too, 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 too much that makes it look like a circus or a a clown, like a type of a, an act, a, a farce, you know? And so, I mean, let's, let's talk about Pose. You know, when you think about it, what you see is this circumstance that happened in a time and place that's so far removed from our current reality. And those people lived a so very different experience of what it means to be LGBT. And it's not that different from what Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera experienced only a decade before. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at it by today's standards, our truths are more refined, our truths are more supported, our truths are more understood, but at the very same time, it's still to a very limited degree. And so what it need, what what needs to happen is we need trans people on Oprah. We need trans people on KFOR. We need trans people on the Mathis Brothers commercials. We need trans people representing the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce. We need trans people on the board of directors at Freedom Oklahoma. We need trans people lobbying the Democratic Party for the state of Oklahoma. We need people that are talking to Mayor David Hall and saying, you need to make this a priority. We mm-hmm. need to do these things because this is how we went. Amen to that. Yes. Well, um, here's a couple of things written down on this, and I was just saying, we pretty much covered trans um, in Oklahoma. What about um, anything else to say about being trans in tribal Oklahoma for us, us skins out here, us natives out yeah. here? Yeah, let me, let me talk about that. <clears throat> I think that my trans experience as a Native American woman who first identified as non-binary is vastly different from every other Native American trans woman you'll ever encounter. And what I mean by that is I, I came from Midtown. My parents were born and raised in downtown and Midtown Tulsa. And their parents and their grandparents came from places like Okta and Rennesville and Boynton, these checkerboard communities that are black and native communities. And, you know, um, west of Muskogee and in Tahlequah proper, out in the middle of nowhere in the 18-somethings, you know, and these are who I come from. You know, I come from a lot of families, and if you guys really want the rundown one day, I'll give it to you, because it's like a roll call, and I'm ready with it. <laughs> but, oh, you're coming back, honey. Okay, I'm coming back. <laughs> <laughs> you may become our uh, satelliting host. Hold oh, on now. Yes. Let, let me get into it. Let me get into it, because, you know, there's so much more to say. But one of the things that I love the most is that I had the opportunity as a teenager to explore spirituality and being a midtown person, I had no exposure to church because I'm a heathen and I had no exposure to Stalgates because I'm a city Indian. And you know, being more white than native makes my scenario even more precarious because listen, bitch, these blue eyes are pretty, but they sure do mark me as a half-breed. I've been termed use, but it's my personal reality and people have to remind me. Aside from that, I would say that most of my experience with people that are urban natives from coast to coast, you know, from, you know, the Bay Area, American Indian, two spirits to American Indian community house in New York City have been very supportive of me and they've provided me lots of really amazing opportunities. 
I actually got the chance to go to Governor's Island this summer and have a workshop about missing and murdered Indigenous women on behalf of American Indian Community House and get the chance to speak to the New York Native American community because one thing that they're lacking is intense cohesion because it's such a diaspora scenario and people need to have those moments to come together and really get creative and get focused. That's really exciting that you got to bring that to the other coast. Like, yeah. very exciting. Absolutely. It was a beautiful thing. You know, that's the other thing, too, is it's a really fucked up thing because what happened was when I was there, it was during the week, weekend of the anniversary of Pride, the anniversary 50th of Stonewall. And during that time, it was the most amazing and beautiful celebration for gay men. We and can break down Stonewall for us so honorarily just because that's, yeah. I think we use it a little more yeah. openly than people know. Go right ahead. So in 1969, there was a riot that took place in a gay bar. There was an undercover gay bar called Stonewall in the village. I think it's on Christopher Street. And it was a it was a, a secret gay bar and there are there are reports that say that the trans women of color were the first ones to throw the bricks, the first ones to attack the cops, the first ones to take the lead in revolting because they had had enough because this was a circumstance consistently in New York City. Trans women, especially trans women of color, were harassed and beaten and attacked and robbed by the police. Like they were in a speakeasy, they were there because they had to they had to gather in secret. It was a matter of personal safety without a doubt. Absolutely. Which I don't think people really understand the personal safety issue and how important that is. But we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah, for sure. We can we can discuss that again. But back to yeah, back to Stonewall. It was kind of a pivotal moment, a landmark moment. There's actually a more important moment that I'd like to address and it's Compton's Cafeteria in 1966 in San Francisco. And it's a much unsung scenario, but I think that it predates the fact that trans women were revolting everywhere. And I think that there's two examples of interest that you could really look up. You can go online and Google it, or you can view a kind of fantasy version of the story in Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City because they did a beautiful portrayal that included Olympia Dukakis. That being said, what happened was there was this 50th anniversary scenario that coincided with an event called World Pride. And World Pride is a traveling party that goes from one city to the next every single year, like the Gay Olympics of parties. And so, I mean, it's, it's something else, I have to say. So what I know is that there are approximately four to five million additional people in the NYC Metro for this weekend. And it made it really taxing because the most, the most odd and bizarre thing was to know that the majority of them were cisgender gay men and that they were there for like hookup style, you know, circuit party style um, weekend times. And there were several moments throughout the weekend and you guys can look this up online. I don't want to waste your one night with these stories, but you can look at all these events where trans women of color were attacked and jeered at and mistreated and the police were called on them and they were physically attacked in Jackson Heights. And there are so many circumstances throughout this particular weekend that made it really, really, really frustrating and uncomfortable to be a trans woman of color at Pride. And in addition to that, I wore a ribbon skirt and I marched in both the Queer Liberation March and the World Pride March. And I have to say, this was probably the 20th LGBT Pride Parade I've marched in in a ribbon skirt of some sort or a traditional tribal dress. And I'm letting you know right now it's going to be the last because what happens for Native American people in the LGBT community 
as that one used to us in our tribal clothing, looking our best and feeling our best, what the response is, is confusion or tokenism or mocking or uh, sexualization, you know. Right. None of these things are appealing and none of these things are a feel-good scenario. They all feel like the most disappointing mockery of reaching out to somebody and assessing their humanity. And so because of that, I will never be wearing tribal clothing again at such an event because it's not for those eyes. And I've discovered that for the 20th time too many. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I, I made that same rule, I think, two, two or three years ago that I won't wear my um, clothing unless it's a native-led event for that reason because it becomes fetishized and tokenized and I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, it's really appalling. And I think that it's safe to say, but the prettier of an Indian girl you are and the more multiracial, white-leaning you appear, the more we're tokenized and more sexualized because the more appropriate we are to and the more palatable we are to white America. Can I just put in this, like, where it will fit in? Girl, since we have been Facebook friends and stuff like that, you know what this, like, when it comes up on your Facebook and says, you have a friend request. And it's a single man. Guess who I have in common with them? It's always me. Baby girl. (laughs) And I jokingly am like, I'm getting secondarily fetishized. Not by me. And I'm like, but by Corey people. Like, really? And then I'm like, I'm going to have to go kill everybody. Listen, like, (laughs) there's, you know, there's two reasons why I accept a lot of friend requests that I probably shouldn't. And one of them is because I want them to understand. It's it's kind of a modeling thing. It's kind of a networking thing. And Carmen gets it because Carmen's a model too. And yeah, and it's a lot. We have the exact same jobs in life. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that you know you understand because you never know when your networking opportunity is going to come through. You never know who knows who, and you never know who's going to come at you with this confused approach and then learn something new and learn a, a new way to respect you. And I feel the same way whenever I go to work every day because I work in a salon. I make a lot of money for my salon owner. I make a lot of money for myself. I have a beautiful time. I love my job every day. I love that I can leave it at the door, but I love that every day when I come in, I'm fully present. I think it's amazing, and I think that it's beautiful, and I think that it's a spectacular thing that I've got a clientele that is very supportive. But the irony of that is only about two-thirds of them have any idea. And so I think that, that it's a weird thing being a trans woman because that makes you feel really good. Because in my opinion, that makes me feel like they're seeing me the way that I am, mm-hmm. not the way that, that somebody else wants to know me. But um, I think that that's one of the reasons that I accept so many, you know, friend requests from single and married guys. It was the most amazing thing the other day. I accepted a request from a married guy whose name I recognize. I won't name him, but he's a photographer and his wife is a photographer. And she saw me on Facebook because I liked some of her photography. And she told her husband, we've got to photograph this girl. She's beautiful. And so they reached out to me. And it's just, you never know how you're going to meet people. And I'm open to that. And I'm making sure that I'm open to that. And I'm making sure that those opportunities that can come my way will. Because I know that, I'm, for better or worse, there's not a lot of people trying to do what I'm trying to do right here. To be closeted is one thing. And then to be proud enough to feel that you are... I love your photography. I love the pictures you're taking. I love your tastefulness. And, girl, I hope you've got some personal ones behind the scenes and such because yours are so modest in a good way. And I 
mean, like, I'm so respectful that I'm like, I've been a model and I've been a um, moderately discretionary female. And I mean, I've flashed a little more than I thought I was going to have to to make sure that shit was free. Speaking of that visibility, can you let our listeners know where they can follow you to see your amazing photographs? Yes. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Corey Tabor, C-O-R-I-T-A-B-E-R. And if you're interested in the work that I do in the salon, you can follow me at Corey Tabor. And both of those are my Insta tags. And then in the instance that maybe you're not an Insta kind of person, you can also find me on Facebook and you're welcome to You can contact the podcast at BrokeBrokenPodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found online at www.BrokeBrokenPodcast.com, on Twitter at BrokeBrokenShow, on Instagram and Facebook at BrokeBrokenPodcast. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube.